these pastoral epistles, and we're spending a week per book. So obviously, if we're only spending one hour on a study, we are not exhausting all that there is in the book. The, the purpose of these studies is overview and survey. So ideally, once we're done with these studies, you have a much better uh, grasp on where you can go if you're looking for information on certain things and verses you can connect others to as you counsel and encourage and comfort. So uh, I'm going to pray and we'll dive into 1 Peter tonight. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful uh, just for how blessed we are. I'm thankful for the opportunity here to stop down in the middle of the week and to consider your word. I'm thankful for this letter that was written so many years ago um, that is... um, telling and encouraging and convicting. Uh, Lord, we are thankful for this time, and we humble ourselves before you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this semester, uh, back in January, we started with the pastoral epistles, and we started in Galatians. So I want to do a little quiz to see uh, who remembers what. And if it goes poorly on the first couple questions, we're going to ditch the quiz, and I'm going to come at it from a totally different angle. So, what was the main point of Galatians? Does anyone remember that? Did y'all say something different? Grace, faith. Uh, Grace is Ephesians. Faith is Galatians. That's okay. It's, uh, so, Galatians is faith. Ephesians is grace. Anyone remember what the main point in Philippians was? Humility. And Colossians was new life. Um, I'm not even going to try that one. Every time I've asked for the last four weeks, no one can remember that. Uh, 1 Thessalonians, second coming, no one usually remembers that. 2 Thessalonians is hope. What about 1 Timothy? Leadership. 2 Timothy. Success, a biblical view of what success is. What about Titus? A book of forgiveness and beginnings. Yes. And Philemon? Forgiveness. Yeah. I just, there was some forgiveness in there somewhere, I'm sure. And Hebrews was what? What was the point in Hebrews? Sticking with the best, yes, and we spent uh, some, a few years in Hebrews expository preaching through that, so a survey study was a very different approach, obviously. And then last week in James, what was the main focus? Faith that works. I think there were th- like three or four of y'all here last week, so I'm glad that someone got that. And, it's, uh, and by the way, way to, way to go for being here this week, I'm encouraged by that. Um, yeah, it was James is this uber practical book. Very, very, very practical. This is what you do when this is the case. And we spent our time in that. This week, it brings us to 1 Peter. And 1 Peter, the topic is when things get tough. And rather than starting with sort of the basic intro, um, these studies come from Mark Dever's book, Dever or Dever. Um, I hear it 50-50 said different ways. Um, but Mark Dever has two books And one is an Old Testament survey and one is a New Testament survey. And the Old Testament survey is titled Promises Made. And the New Testament survey is titled Promises uh, Promises Kept. And these studies come from his book. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel. And so what I do each week is I go through, I read his book, and then I kind of form a study for us that's more fitting for our setting in spending less than an hour on it. So his title that he has is When Things Get Tough, which is kind of a gimme because this is a book on on struggling, on suffering. So I want to um, start off by reading some verses just to kind of get us um, situated and, 
and familiarized with the text. So look at 1.3. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if you jump over to 2.19, it says, For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he, was suffered, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. And in 4.1 it says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And then in 4.12 it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. What's the obvious theme of this letter written by Peter to the elect exiles of the dispersion? What's the obvious theme? Enduring suffering. Not just suffering, but enduring suffering. He's going to give throughout this letter some direction. Now, this, this exile is not an actual exile. It's more of a, you are a Christian who's living in the world and you are awaiting your eternal inheritance. So that's the exile he's talking about. And when you see at the beginning when it says, um, to, those, to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, it's very likely that um, Silvanus, who was delivering this letter, that that was some direction for him on the route to take. Stop here, and then here, and then here, and then here. So that just gives you, if you're wondering about if, what the exile thing is, that, that's what we're talking about here. But suffering. There are many pious quotes when it comes to suffering. And there are some views on suffering that are um, sensational. There are some views on suffering that are idealistic. There are some views on suffering that maybe aren't quite in tune with what Scripture says and what the experience has been for Christians over the years. So when we talk about suffering, before we even dive a little deeper into this text, I kind of want us to maybe consider that we need to step out of an area of pretense or an area of maybe falsehood. Or maybe it's something that we, don't even, we didn't even mean to be in, 
but just we might need to consider it. So just, if that doesn't make sense yet, just go with me. So here's some, here's some quotes on suffering. It is the suffering church that is the growing church. It is the suffering church that is the growing church. That sounds good, right? That sounds like growth is going to happen if we, if we suffer. Scars are the price which every godly believer pays for loyalty to Christ. Every godly believer. So I would assume from that quote that, that every godly believer in this room has some scar physically somewhere on your body that has been inflicted upon you because of your belief in Christ. This one's my favorite. Crushing the church is like smashing the atom. Divine energy of high quality is released in enormous quantity and with miraculous effects. A little bit nerdy, a little so much love, yet so much information. Um, the problem is that many, if not most, of these pious quotes are spoken by people a lot like you and me. And so I want us to be real sober and honest as we begin a study on what's predominantly focusing on suffering. Because those quotes are a lot of times made by people looking at it in really idealistic terms. They're looking at it in, in a light that makes them feel better about something that's not fun, suffering. Does God bless us in it? Absolutely. Does the, does the church flourish even where there's been suffering? Absolutely. But we've got to be careful on these big kind of statements because a lot of those quotes are spoken by people like you and me. I don't know everyone's situation in this room, and I don't want to minimize suffering. I want to be careful here. Though there are many who have suffered well, Dever says in his book, if we're honest, the church crushed by persecution often has not grown. The church crushed by, crushed by persecution often has not grown numerically. As far as growth, we, we focus on growth in numeric terms a lot in the church. Um, there, there's terrible patterns that we have of someone says, oh, I go to such and such church. And like the first question that people ask is, oh, well, how many, how many people are there? It's like, because if it's a certain number, then, then thumbs up. And if it's not, then thumbs down. It's, so we have these views of growth that are oftentimes very man-centered. But if we're honest, the church crushed by persecution often has not grown in the way that we would expect, let alone explode with atomic power. More often than we care to say, it's been slowly strangled to death. You consider the Middle East and North Africa. From the get-go, Christians faced persecution, and with the rise of Islam, um, Christians were systematically wiped out. And there was a long point in the history of our world where um, the only thing that slowed the persecution and murder of Christians was that they were running out of Christians to persecute and murder. That was what slowed that process was just a simple supply and demand issue. After the rise of Islam, um, many died. I want to say all this up front because keeping these observations and realities in mind I think makes First Peter more helpful. If we kind of go into it with these presuppositions of um, suffering's always going to result in growth, and it's always going to result in explosive power. There is an eternal reality to everything that we do, but we cannot say with certainty that if, um, if someone comes in here and starts physically um, hurting members of this church, that our numbers are going to go up. So I want to kind of get away from this sort of sensationalized consideration of suffering because I think that stepping out of that helps us to, to gain more from 1 Peter and from what's going on here. So, consider these early Christians to whom Peter was writing. 
they knew suffering. Peter mentions that they were on the receiving end of insults, intimidations, grumblings, and threats over the course of the book. Peter himself would go on to be crucified. We, we don't know that from here, but we know that from other resources. Peter would be crucified. Dever notes, understandably, these early Christians were beginning to wonder this. And this is the, the motivation behind this letter. These early Christians were beginning to wonder, what is going on? What is the deal? Why have things gone this direction? Maybe we've done something wrong. Maybe we've made a bad decision in following Jesus because as soon as we started following Jesus, things started happening to us that were bad and we were treated poorly and we were maligned and we were questioned and we were all of a sudden suspicious and we weren't as revered and respected as we were. So these early Christians here would be thinking things along those lines. What is happening? If, if we've chosen the right way, why is there so much suffering? There was confusion about the situation and a lack of clarity about what to do about it. They're, they're sitting there saying, I feel like I'm doing the right thing, but I'm not getting, um, you know, the wind's not at my back. Um, I'm not having this abundant harvest every time I turn around. Have I made a wrong decision? I don't know what to do about this. And that's the setting in which Peter sends this letter to these elect exiles. And he addresses two questions that will serve as our outline tonight. And here's the two questions. The first question is, why do Christians suffer? Particularly, why do Christians suffer for their faith if faith is something that's good? Why do Christians suffer? And what should suffering Christians do? That's the two questions that he addresses and the two things that, he, that this group needs to hear. Why are we suffering and what should we do about it? Because some of them are saying, was this a bad decision, this whole Jesus thing? So look at 2.20. Why do Christians suffer? I already read part of it, but in 2.20, we'll look at it again. For what credit is it if when you sin or beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, uh, and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So to be clear, what are the two possible kinds of suffering that can happen to these particular believers that are being written to, and really anyone else. Two kinds of suffering. What are, what are they? Yeah. Yeah. When you sin and you suffer, and, and when you don't sin and you suffer. Has anyone ever sinned and suffered? Okay. I'm not asking for examples. They're, they're like, um, I have, but I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. That Everyone has sinned and suffered. So Paul's not talking about when you do the stupid, wrong, sinful, whatever thing, and you suffer. He's talking about when you do good. It's, you have to be clear about this up front. What kind of suffering is he talking about? The kind of suffering that comes from doing good. Peter's focus is on that particular suffering. Now, there's a couple of things here. First, I want you to see, what does it say about God when that's happening? What does he say about God when you're suffering unjustly? It's a gracious thing in his sight. What does that mean? What do, you, what do you think it means that it's a gracious thing in God's sight when that happens? Yeah. 
Yeah, that you're willing, it's gracious in his sight that you're willing to hold on to your faith in times of struggle. Yeah, yeah, we're being made into Christ's likeness. What, what is grace? That's mercy. Getting that which you don't deserve. Okay, so it's interesting. If you say that grace is getting that which you don't deserve and mercy is not getting what you do deserve, for it to be a gracious thing, it's almost like you're getting this ability to endure because you have this gift of faith that comes from our Father. And the, and the big thing that floors me about it is God cares about it. And if God cares about it, we should care about it. If, if there's suffering Christians throughout the world and we're sort of indifferent to like, well, that's a bummer. It's, it's a real bummer, I guess. That, that's not fitting because God says it's a gracious thing when people are being faithful and they're doing good and they're on the receiving end of injustice and they're suffering because of what's happening. So we will never have we will never relate to those who are suffering and love them if we do not first see that God cares about that. It's sort of like back when we were studying Philemon. There was a relational conflict between Philemon and Onesimus, and then Onesimus went to jail because he was already kind of a loser, and that was part of the problem with the conflict. And then in jail, he meets Paul, and Paul shares Christ, and Onesimus comes to Christ, and then Paul says, you know, this thing that you're telling me about with your, with your um, boss Philemon, you, need, you really need to go back. Y'all are brothers in Christ, and you need to make that right. And he goes back, and just this reality that God gives a rip about Philemon and Onesimus. With all that's going on, all the stars that are named and being held in place, God cares about Philemon and Onesimus to such a degree that it's put in our scriptures. And then here, what we see is that God cares. God, it is if you do good and suffer for it, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. God's eyes are on those who are suffering. God cares about it. And we will never care about it if we don't fully believe that God is invested and interested in caring for his children who are in a suffering situation. Yeah, and that's going to come back around when we see what he tells them to do. Because, I mean, you're, you're right on, you're, you're killing my punchline, Clay. That's what's happening. Um, so we see that, um, that God cares about this. And the other thing here is that when, when Peter says, you're suffering because you're doing the right thing, that would have been a significant affirmation and encouragement for those who are confused, right? Because they're like, hey, are we doing the wrong thing? Because we're, we're, we're being wrong. People are walking away from us. I'm losing friends left and right. I'm being threatened. Um, some are losing their lives. Hey, are we doing the wrong thing? And, and when, Paul, when Peter, it's very difficult when you're teaching every week on Paul's epistles and you go to one written by Peter. I knew this was going to be a problem. When Peter um, comes in and what, what happens is it's, um, he says, no, you're doing, you're doing what's right. 
It's like with your kids. If they're having a hard time with something, but they're doing what's right, say, no, 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 you're doing it right. Just keep trying. You keep persevering. You keep moving forward. This would have been affirmation for those who were confused. You're doing good. That's why you're suffering. You're not suffering because you're doing the wrong thing. They would have to see that really, really clearly, right up front and at the beginning. You're suffering because you're doing the right thing, and it's not a bad decision. And here's why, because we're, we're asking the question, why do Christians suffer? And the first answer to that question is because God has chosen us to be his special people. God has chosen us to be his special people. Why do Christians suffer? Because God has chosen us to be his special people. This means that we're holy. Look at 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And in 10 it says, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Um, most believe that the majority of those on the receiving end of this letter were Gentiles because there's some history spoken of here. See, that, that wouldn't have necessarily been fitting to a bunch of Jews because they have a history with God. So this is people who, we weren't God's people at all. We were completely strangers, completely aliens to God, and God made us his own. Not only just identifying with us, but royal priesthood, chosen race, holy nation, a people for his possession. And it goes on, look over at 113. It says, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct, in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So this thing happened to these very young Christians where when they were called by God and made to be His, His holiness had the impact on them that they should be holy because He is holy. So why do Christians suffer? Well, because you're holy and you're supposed to be holy. And in that pursuit of holiness, you're likely to suffer. So here's my question. Taking those few verses into account that we just read, what should be the impact on those who are set apart? What should be the impact of being set apart and made holy to God, according to those verses? Yep, you look for his approval and not the approval of the world. What else? I love it. Let's talk about that for a minute. Don't take it personally when you're standing firmly in the holiness of God. What are some situations where we might take it personally and be um, shocked? What in the world? How dare you? Sort of an attitude. What are some, some you know, things you've witnessed in other people's lives? Yeah. Yep. People losing their job because they stood up for the Lord. Kind of hard to be shocked if there's something that says don't do that. 
or policy maybe. What else? So you could be ostracized because you're, you're, you're cut out because you don't approve of what they're doing. How do they know you don't approve? Because of the way you live. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, buzzkill. Get them out of here. Yeah. What else? What are some other situations where that might come about? Don't be shocked when you're ostracized or wronged. And you just spoke scripture to him. Sure. So, yeah. Yeah. What else? Wow. Well, one, thank you for sharing that. That's vulnerable and helpful to hear. That, that is a really great example. I mean, that you're, you were told that you can't read the Bible on your own because the priests will tell you what's there, but I doubt that they would say you're a royal priesthood, you know? So those are the kinds of, and, and then when you begin to walk in that, persecution arises, even within family. Anything else? Any other thoughts there? We'll, we'll, we'll hit a few more, I'm sure, as we go through this. Um, so the impact of being set apart is really we look beyond the circumstances to the one who created us. We, we, can, we will get bogged down in the circumstances. We will be shocked, uh, discouraged, um, angry. I mean, have you ever been wrong for something that you did right and then you decided to remedy that with unholy anger? No? I'm the only one? Fantastic. All right. Well, um, don't do that like uh, one of your pastors has done. Um, but yeah, we, we, look at, we look beyond the circumstance to the one who created us. Being holy, the, the, the complete, entire, only source of our holiness is our Lord. And so for us to remain holy and to be holy as he is holy, we have to keep our eyes on him. We have to set our minds and our thoughts on him. Our trajectory of life has to be toward him. And we're not, you can't just muster holiness. So the circumstance can't be bigger than the God of the circumstance. The second thing is that if we're holy, we're strange. That's what, that's what Peter's kind of teasing out here. You're holy, 
or you're, or you're strange to them. You're strange because you're holy, but when you're holy, it means you're going to be strange. So look at 1.1. It just says that Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This, this picture is not an actual exile, but it's those who are different. They're exiles because they're sojourners, they're strangers on earth. Exiles, strangers is kind of similar language. And in 17, 117, he says, and if you call and if sorry, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And in two eleven, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And then in 4.4, it says, with respect to this, if you can go up before in verse 3, and this is another reason why it's likely this is written to Gentiles. It says, for the time is past, that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Like, the same things that people struggle with now were no different then. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That's getting back to what Corey said earlier, where they know you don't approve. Well, they know you don't approve because you're not going to take part in it. Like as it says here, you're not joining with them. You're not joining in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So it may be that you're living life, you become a believer, and then those friends that you have, just when you say, I love you guys, you're my friends, but I'm, I'm not going to do that, we're not supposed to be surprised when they malign you. Like it's written out, it's the same sentence in, in this letter. Don't be surprised when they malign you. Is that not something that would be helpful for us to teach our children really early on? Really early on. Because approval of others is a really big thing in our culture, obviously. Yeah, it's a great point. Yeah. yeah. She said high school's too late. It's already ingrained. It's an uphill battle you can't win. That's a very, very good point. So um, if God's people take their bearings from God and live as holy people, the world will think we are strange. Uh, I was looking at some examples of this, and we have a, um, a, a family that lives overseas, and um, he's a good friend of mine, and I happened to be on the phone with him on July 4th, and uh, I jokingly said, well, well how, how are the festivities over there? What's July 4th like? And he was like, you know, it's just not the same. It's just not the same as when I'm in the States celebrating the independence of America. Turns out in this country, they don't really celebrate the independence of America. And he said, but there are, there are some Americans who gather, you know, they gather at a park and hang up some banners and stuff. And, and I was thinking about that. I was like, that's kind of this picture of strange. Like, they're doing what is totally natural to them. But in an environment where it's not natural to everybody else, imagine being in a park where you're celebrating July 4th with, like, bottle rockets and fire, because that's what we celebrate with. And, and you got like, you know, American flag banners and everything else. And you're in another country and they're looking at you like, what strange Americans those are. Bunch of weirdo. What is going on there? What is that? That's kind of an example of, of what this would be like. If we're holy, we're strange. So let's transition from that example to something more current. Let's talk about our views of marriage. 
the Christian, the Christian community, it's pretty straightforward what marriage is. But in our culture, it's been blown up into it can be this, it can be this, it can be that, and the laws pertaining to it are changing all the time, and the laws pertaining to what the churches can do in regards to it are changing all the time, and there are these restrictions and these things. And we live in a culture now where just the basic principle of marriage between a man and a woman, if you say, that's, that's all the marriage is. Marriage isn't anything else. There's no such thing as a different version of marriage than the one that's between a man and a woman. In our culture, you're like the Americans sitting in the park in another country, sitting there celebrating with, with bottle rockets, like weirdos. And not only that, they might be dangerous. I'll not tolerate their intolerance, you know, that whole thing. And so in our culture, there, what are some other examples of, of when we might look strange because of holiness? Marriage is the obvious one. What else? Yeah, they don't want to talk about that. Let's talk about purity. No? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 Common law. What else? Cussing. Yeah. If you're the guy who uses an alternative cuss word, in the middle of all the guys who are using normal cuss words. <laughs> Dag nabbit. Skittle faddle. <laughs> Do what? <laughs> yeah, Yosemite Sam. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I, 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 do secu- I do security work. Yeah, some people. I do security work on the side, and so I'm often on job sites. And you'll strike up conversations with whoever, and like, you know, you start talking, it's like, yeah, I'm actually, um, you know, pastor, and I do this on the side, and, and inevitably, it goes, oh, man, I am, <laughs> I wish you'd have told me that at, like, 8 a.m., because it's, like, 1, and I have been laying it out there, and, but it's like, it's like, well, I don't usually do well around such unholiness, but I forgive you, you know, um, but yeah, yeah, just the way you talk. What are some other examples? Yeah, gender identity stuff. No one wants to expound on that. It's it's so sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. That's what the devil wants you to do. Just listen to the beat. Act like the words don't matter. Yeah. I kind of went a little church lady on that. Sorry. <laughs> the devil. Yeah. Um, when your life says there's a different way to live, people don't like it. That, that's kind of what it boils down to. When the way you speak, the way you carry yourself, even the way you treat others, um, sensitivities towards those who are weak, uh, kindness towards those who don't have good friends, there's a whole realm of, of humanity that frowns on that as a weakness, forgiving people's wrongs. It's your glory to overlook an offense. Ooh, that could be weakness. I mean, if you're running a business, people will see that as a weakness in your business model. When your life says that there is a different way to live, 
people often will not like that. And then 4, 2 through 4, it says, um, I already read it, but it says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Why do we seem so strange according to that, according to that particular set of verses? Why does it seem so strange? What is the motivation behind our living? Yeah. The will of God. It's not just, I'm just trying to look different, or I don't want to look the same, or, or it's not just that. It's living for the will of God. And so in every circumstance, there's a question that the Christian can say, is this the will of God or not? Could it be the will of God for me to be doing this sinful thing? No, then I'm not going to do that. And that's going to affect every decision. It's going to affect all of your relationships. It's going to affect how you talk to people. It's going to affect how you respond to, to conflict. It's going to affect how you respond to suffering unjustly, particularly in this circumstance. Because you are living for the will of God no longer for human passions. Is it not a human passion to want to escape suffering? So here it's like, well, what is the will of God? Because it might be the will of God for you to suffer. That's what this is boiling down to. And we're going to talk about that a little more in just a second. Dever says, our culture thinks we are strange because we give allegiance to someone they don't know. We give allegiance to someone that they don't know, so it seems strange. And he said, it would almost be like pulling out a chair for someone who's not there or having a conversation with someone who's not there. That's kind of the sense that others would have when your allegiance is to someone that they don't know and that they cannot see. So here's some encouragement. If someone sees that you're living differently, sometimes there's a tendency to try to just recruit those people, right? I'm just going to recruit you to do what I do. You know what? I'm not cussing anymore. Maybe you should stop cussing. I'm not dipping anymore. Maybe you should stop dipping. I quit smoking. Are you going to keep smoking those cancer sticks? I don't drink anymore. Are you going to keep do- drinking the devil's alcohol? What, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. And we just kind of try to recruit. And I think there's an encouragement in this set of verses of don't try to explain to others the way you live and get them to do the same without first telling them about God. Because if, if God's your entire motivation, the will of God, the holiness of God, is the entire motivation for your every action, don't try to conform them to you. Conform them, try, try to help them be conformed to the Father. Because remember, it is a grace. It is a gift. And you can't force that kind of thing on people. That, that's one of the hard... Do what? Yeah, it's duct taping fruit to a tree. That was one of the thoughts I had. Paul Tripp has a, a, uh, an illustration on... There's a difference between... You know, he said, he, he talks about this tree. I don't know if he actually, you know, when you have these illustrations that are so good from some of these guys that are so slick, you're like, did that really happen? Or did you make that illustration up? Supposedly, there's an apple tree in his backyard. And, and his wife wanted fruit on the tree. And so there was this thing where he was like, I could staple apples or nail apples to the tree, but that's not, you know, getting to the heart of the matter. And what's, what, what's that fruit going to do as opposed to the fruit that was brought forth naturally through good nutrition and deep roots, well, that fruit's going to rot and wither and fade. And so that's the thing here. Don't try to staple fruit to someone else's tree or get them to do the same thing. You're not trying to conform them to your image. You're hoping that they might be conformed to God's image, which only happens through the grace of God in Christ. 
So why do Christians suffer? First, because God has chosen us as a special people. And next, because we're called to participate in the sufferings of Christ. We are called to participate in the sufferings of Christ. I'll admit, for most of my life, I've thought of it in sort of a byproduct manner. Like, you know what? I'm going to follow Jesus, and there may or may not be some times where by default or, you know, as a side thing, I suffer. And so it's just sort of this possibility. But I think the terms that are used in Scripture are far more than a possibility and absolutely, completely, certainly a guarantee. You will suffer if you're moving in holiness. In 4.13, it says, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In 5.1, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock that is among you exercising oversight. In 1.2, it says... According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied. And then 3.18, think about Peter saying this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. How do you think Peter's history uh, affects the way he views Christ's sufferings? What do we know about Peter when he walked with Jesus? What are some things that were indicative of his life? Level-headed guy? Kind of a hothead. And and when, when did we see that? He cut off the guard's ear. Transfiguration. And um, was he always able to cash the checks that his, right, that his uh, mouth would write? No. Yeah. Trying to walk on the water. Didn't work. What, what else? Yeah. Yeah. And then he denied him. Once, and then twice, and then three times. So if you take that guy who is zealous and a go-getter, the kind of guy you want on the team, but maybe not necessarily leading the team, and he sees, the sac- he sees Jesus hanging on the cross after he has denied Jesus three times, what effect do you think the sacrifice of Christ would have on him? Yeah. Suffering? Yeah. There might be some guilt. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. What was the what was what was Peter's view of suffering before he saw Jesus suffer? Yeah. He was, it was beyond what he was willing to participate in. So what do we know about his view from suffering when the little girl comes up and says, weren't you with Jesus? And he says, I don't know him. 
What does that tell you about his view of suffering? He's not willing to. He doesn't like it. Not, certainly not going to volunteer for it. Kind of a, um, not a great, like, Peter, an interview. Peter, what do you think about suffering? No. Willing to lie to get out of suffering? Willing to jeopardize beliefs? Willing to jeopardize witness to get out of suffering? Those were his views before he saw Jesus suffer for his sins. Those are his views. With those views, he looks at the cross and Jesus is there suffering for his sins. What impact does that then have on Peter? From everything we've read tonight, what, what impact does that have on Peter? Yeah. It made him embrace suffering. What else? Eventually. He understood the point of suffering when he understands that his sufferings are Christ's sufferings and Christ's sufferings are his sufferings. He, he understands the grace in a whole new way. He understands, frankly, the will of God in a whole new way, right? He's trying to write to these churches. Uh, it's so fitting that Peter is the one writing this letter to these Christians in these churches that are worried about suffering and that are weary about suffering because Peter's the one who was like, I hate suffering, but then I saw him suffer. And that's who we belong to. How could we not be willing to suffer if not for what Christ has done? When I look at what he's done, how could we not be willing to do that? And so it transformed Peter to where he wanted it. to. He didn't want to just be, it wasn't about Peter at that point. It's when you're genuinely transformed and willing to suffer because of the suffering of Christ, to be counted as his, that is the point where it's really not about you anymore. You don't get to choose the suffering. There's some people who have sort of a martyr complex, like, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to suffer. I'm going to choose the suffering. I'm going to choose to be killed for my faith. You don't choose that. God chooses that. We're talking about the will of God here. But when you get to that point where, like Peter did, where, okay, I'm not a, I don't like suffering, then you look at Jesus suffering for your sins that the righteousness of God might be counted as yours and not your sins counted against you, then suffering takes on a different perspective. Look at 2.20. We've read it before twice now. For what credit is you when you sin and are beaten if you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Peter did not do that before the suffering of Christ. Peter's the one saying, yeah, if you do the wrong thing, you suffer. But, but if you do good and because of the good you suffer, that's a gracious thing in the sight of God. That's Peter saying, I don't think it was gracious in the sight of God when I rejected Jesus when I acted like I didn't know his son. But you know what is gracious in the sight of God? When you are willing to endure, when you are willing to identify with Christ when it's not going to be good for you. When you're willing to identify with Christ when it might go very bad for you. He's wanting them to understand that, and it's all completely rooted in the will of God in Christ. It's not even, I mean, if ever there was a guy who could write like an experiential book that's just totally anecdotal about his experience I used to hate suffering, and now I'm going to be persecuted and hung on a cross eventually. I'm going to be crucified, just like Jesus eventually. I mean, this guy could have been all about him, but he, it's all about the will of God. It's amazing to me that he gets through this whole letter and doesn't even bring up the crowing rooster, because it's not about him, because he's actually gotten to the place where he's willing to suffer. 
for Christ. And it's not just Peter. Peter listened to Jesus. Matthew 16, turn over there. It's not normal that we go to other books during these studies, but tonight it's fitting. Matthew 16 says, 16.24, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In 2 Timothy, he says you'll be persecuted like me. In Matthew 5, you'll be persecuted like me. In John 15, you'll be persecuted like me. What we see here is that suffering is the very call that has been issued to you in Christ. It's not just a potential byproduct of living in a holy manner. It is the call, the very call that has been issued to you in Christ. If we don't understand this, we will never be willing to make sacrifices for the, for the kingdom of God. Those who are willing to make sacrifices for the kingdom of God are ones who understand that part of our call is to suffer. But it's not only suffering because we know how the story ends. We know that we're exiles here, but we're not exiles in heaven. That's our eternal dwelling. So the last three things in closing. What should Christians do? What should suffering Christians do? There's three things. What should suffering Christians do? And the first is be holy. Be holy. 116. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So suffering Christians should be holy. Suffering Christians should be witnesses. 211, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The very way that you act can be a witness. The way you speak can be a witness. So be holy and be witnesses. 2.23 says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but when he, suffered, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So be holy and be witnesses. And then finally, be loving. We have 4.7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins, showing hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God, who serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There's this beautiful picture here. Suffering believers, where do they find their relief? Where do they find it? What? Serving others. So if they're serving others, they're serving the suffering. So where is the relief found? The church. It's different. When you read this verse, when you read, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling as you've received a gift used to serve one another. That, we sometimes take that out of context and you know, talk about gifts or whatever, but if you put it in context, it's when you're suffering, the, the relief you'll find in Christ is when it's found with other believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. The church takes care of each other. 2 Corinthians says, comfort those with the comfort with which you were comforted. We take care of each other. The church is in 
very, very important when it comes to how we find relief in suffering. It should be a place of relief because it is a place of love, because we're holy, we're witnesses, and we're loving. So I have three questions that I want to ask real quick, just to kind of get in your head a little bit, that maybe you'll think about it. Holy, witnesses, loving. Those are incredibly interconnected, and they cannot be separated. So my question, let's start at the end. What happens when you're loving, but you're not holy and you're not a witness? Yeah? Yeah. You can end up loving sins. You can be self-serving. Yeah. Why, why, why would you say self-serving? Yeah, love that's not of Christ is for me. Yeah. So if you're loving but not holy and not a witness, it, it may not even be love from a biblical definition. Well, what happens if you're a witness but you're not holy and you're not loving? <coughs> you're not much of a witness. Yeah. You're probably not going to be listened to because you're not, not a good witness. You're selling something you're not buying. What else might might happen there? Your actions won't back up your words if you're a witness that's not holy or loving. You're, you won't be listened to. Um, you'll be more of a Bible thumper, more of a legalist. You do this. You repent. You're going to go to hell. Do you even love me? Like, would you care if I went to hell? Like, if you're saying someone, if, if you're addressing someone with the concern that they might eternally dwell apart from the presence of God, and you say it in an unloving judgmental, arrogant manner, you are shooting the whole thing before it starts. You're shooting yourself in the foot. You're not giving them a proper chance to respond. You're giving mixed signals because you have to have love for that person. So the witness part without holiness and love, it's a, it's a weak witness. And then finally, what happens when you're holy, but you're not witnessing and loving? No fruit? Are you really holy if you're not witnessing and loving? This would be the let's just get our church on kind of people, right? A Pharisee. What do you mean by that? Yes. Yeah. 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 Yep. I got mine. Yeah. The church is on mission. So. You know, one of the quotes that you've heard from our pulpit is that the long arm of evangelism is a healthy church. But a healthy church is going, sending, going, sending, financially, prayerfully, personally, going. So I just want, I want y'all to continue to think about that, frankly. What happens when you're holy, but you're not witnesses and you're not loving? What happens when you're witnesses, but you're not holy and loving? And what happens when you're loving but you're not holy and you're not witnesses. They go together. This is a really great, those little, just if you remember those three words, a lot of times 
Christians who are trying to be in the world but not of the world, and they don't want to get too close because bad you know, company can corrupt good moral character. That's true, but we're still called to be witnesses. If you wonder, how do I talk to these pagans at my workplace? How do I talk to these lost people in my neighborhood? How do I strike up a conversation with someone who's clearly a sinner? This is really helpful. Be holy, be a witness, and be loving. And if you can kind of use those three words to think through it, God will guide you. The Holy Spirit will guide you in those conversations. And you'll find that often he's doing a lot more to open the doors than you are. But you're going to be faithful because you live now for the will of God and not for your own human passions. Let's pray. Lord, you are, greatly, you are great and greatly to be praised. And I, if we believe that, and if we set our minds and eyes on that reality, and we understand that reality in light of the suffering that Christ suffered for us, then we will be willing to make sacrifices for your kingdom. We will be seeking the will of God in all matters. We will be witnesses. We will be holy. We will be loving. Lord, I'm thankful personally just for the relief that is here because of brothers and sisters in Christ who, who take care of each other and who don't become weary in doing good. I pray that we would never neglect one another. We would never neglect to meet together. And I pray that you would be glorified even in our suffering. Lord, we pray for strength. We pray for fortitude, for wisdom. We pray ultimately that in each circumstance where our faith may cost us something, that we would stay in step with the Holy Spirit. We love you and we praise you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.